Please turn in your scriptures to Genesis chapter 4. And please keep your Bibles open to that passage of scripture. Genesis chapter 4. Before we hear the word of the Lord, let's seek the Lord of the word. Let's pray. O living and true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how we thank you that you are there, that you are not silent, that you speak and communicate and reveal yourself to us, reveal your will to us. We pray that you would be pleased to open your word to our hearts and minds, open our hearts and minds to your word through Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Hear God's word as we find it in Genesis chapter 4. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, they called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other, Zillah. 
Adab or Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. When I was a little kid, Dr. Seuss wrote his children's story, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I don't think he ever dreamed that uh, that word Grinch would enter the English language, would become part of our regular vocabulary, would become such a seasonal uh, topic of discussion. And you know the story, the Grinch was so upset because his heart was two sizes too small. He was so upset at the Who's who were so happy, especially at Christmas time, uh, that he wanted to wreck their happiness. And so the night before Christmas, he stole into their city and he stole all their presents and he stole all their feasts and he stole all their decorations. But to his surprise, they were still happy and they still celebrated the next day. He stole the way that they celebrated, but he, he didn't understand what they were celebrating, why they were celebrating, and he couldn't steal that. And so his heart grew three sizes at that moment. You know the story. I want to talk about a real-life Grinch who almost stole Christmas. And by Christmas, I don't mean the yearly festival, I don't mean how we celebrate, I mean what we're celebrating. I mean the first coming of Christ, I mean the birth of the Savior. Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, the human race is guilty, the human race is polluted, the human race is so turned in on itself uh, that we're beyond hope of fixing ourselves. And to really get the impact of Genesis 4, I want you to pretend something, just do a, a thought experiment. And imagine that your Bible ends at the end of Genesis 4. Imagine that's all the Bible that you have. Just for the moment, pretend uh, that, it, that the story ends there. And when you do that, what do you see? First of all, you see that when Cain was born, Adam and Eve actually thought that it was Christmas. They thought that the Savior had come because they remember it still rings in their ears and hearts the first gospel promise in the Bible, the promise that God would send a Savior. Look back at Genesis 3, verse 15. God was pronouncing his curse on the serpent, on the devil, and he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's the first phrase, and it starts on the individual level. The woman had struck up an unholy alliance 
uh, with the evil one. God says, I'm going to put enmity where that friendship is. I'm going to change her heart so that you two are now enemies, not allies. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And then it expands from the singular to the plural. And between your offspring, the devil's offspring, and her offspring. Between the spiritual seed of the woman, the spiritual seed of the serpent. And then it comes back to an individual Speaking of one of the women's offspring, woman's offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And maybe the word that's translated bruise could better be translated crush because it's talking about a fatal wound. This offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It'll be a fatal wound, a fatal wound to the serpent, but he'll pay the price with his own life. It'll be a fatal wound to him in order to do that. Well, that promise is ringing in their ears. They've messed up. They've fallen away from God. They've broken the fellowship that they had with God. They've been changed, and they've been turned in on themselves. But God has promised, you're not going to die yet. You're going to have children, and one of them will fix this problem that you have created. And so we read at the, at the beginning of Genesis 4, Adam knew Eve's wife. She conceived and bore Cain. And when she bore Cain, she said this, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And then she bore his brother Abel. Verse 1 might mean I have gotten a man from the Lord, or it might mean I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But either way, it's clear that Eve was trusting God's promise. Because the statement seemed to express her hope uh, that Cain is the promised offspring who will deal with the consequences of sin. We've messed up, but God has shown grace, and now he's going to fix the problem that we have created. And in that light, uh, the names that Adam and Eve gave to their two sons is very telling. The name Cain means acquisition. The name Abel means insignificance a mere breath, smoke, or vapor. It's, it's exactly the word that's used in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That word is able, able, all is able. In other words, Cain is the one. That's where our hopes lie. Abel is an afterthought. Cain must be the promised offspring who will crush the serpent's head. And the fact is, the birth of these two boys does point forward to the coming of the Savior, because God has not destroyed the human race and God is giving offspring and one of the woman's offspring will crush the head of the serpent and be the savior. So Adam and Eve think this is it. Cain is the one. Christ has come. The savior is here. Cain is the promised savior. But what Cain does makes it clear that Christ has not come yet. And we see that in a number of the things that Cain does. First of all, Cain's worship makes it clear that Christ hasn't come up, hasn't come yet. Cain and Abel are grown up now, and they've come to present their offerings to the Lord. Look at verses 3 to 5. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. 
And these verses seem mysterious. They leave a lot unsaid. But they seem to signal that God had given instruction to Adam and Eve and their descendants about the right time and the right place and the right form of sacrifice. The time is described here as in the course of time, or more literally, at the end of days. It seems that God had appointed a particular time when sacrifices were to be offered. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out when that time is. Uh, God said, Genesis 2-3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The place was probably the east entrance of Eden. That's the side where God had kicked them out. That's the side where God had posted the cherubim. And later when God gave the tabernacle, the east side was always where the entrance was to be. And when the temple was built, the east side was always where the entrance was to be. So the place was probably the east entrance where the cherubim were posted to guard uh, the way into Eden. The offering was probably blood. Back in Genesis 3, we read, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So God killed animals and dressed Adam and Eve in them, and when he did so, he showed them that because the wages of sin is death, an innocent substitute must die in order for God to forgive sinners. And if this is the case, it makes sense out of the passage because when Abel brings an offering of blood, he's coming in faith. He's trusting that God will somehow provide a Savior. But when Cain brings fruit, he's rejecting God's provision. He's trusting that his own religious efforts are good enough. And that demonstrates that Cain's heart is gripped by unbelief. Cain is not the Christ. The Christ has not yet come. But secondly... Cain did something even worse. He murdered Abel. That shows that Christ hasn't come. God warned Cain, don't be so angry. Sin is crouching at the door. You must master it. But how did Cain respond to God's warning? Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Sin was crouching at the door, and sin mastered Cain, and Cain gave in to its mastery. He's surely not the Christ. He's not the Savior. And he showed it even further by his response to God after the murder. God asked him, where is Cain? Where is Abel, your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Notice that he makes two flat denials. First of all, he flatly denies his sin. I don't know. And that's an impulse of the flesh. Ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, that's the impulse of me. That's the impulse of you. That's the impulse of each of Adam and Eve's fallen children to cover our sins, to hide our sins. But as Scripture warns in Proverbs 28, whoever conceals his transgressions shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And why don't we just confess and forsake our transgressions? Largely because we don't understand how merciful God is. We don't apprehend the mercy of God, and so we're afraid to. 
We're afraid to admit it to God. We're afraid to admit it to ourselves. We're afraid to admit it, admit it to anyone else. But when we know that there's mercy with God, then we confess and forsake them, and lo the Lord forgives. But Cain didn't know there was mercy with God. Cain was still looking at himself, looking at his doing. And secondly, he flatly denied any obligation to the law of love. Am I my brother's keeper? No, Cain, you might not be your brother's keeper, but you are your brother's brother. And whoever doesn't love his brother does not know God, because God is love. God is love, and when God's love grips our hearts, we love our brothers and sisters and neighbors. But Cain didn't. God's love did not grip his heart. Sin gripped Cain's heart. He wasn't the Christ. And fourth, his response to God's sentence shows that Christ hasn't come yet. Uh, the Lord sentenced Cain, cursed the ground on account of him. And Cain says, my punishment is worse than I can bear. And he, began, he fell into self-pity. His heart was gripped by unbelief, and unbelief shows itself in self-obsession. Self-exalting, self-seeking, self-pitying. Everything in Cain's life revolved around Cain, revolved around self. Alas, everything in our lives revolves around self until the Lord delivers us from that. Unbelief shows itself in being more concerned about the consequences. I'm going to suffer because of this. I don't, I'm not sorry I did this. I'm sorry that I'm going to suffer. That was Cain's response. And that's the response of each of us apart from the grace of God. But faith loves God. Faith cares about that's, that our sins grieve God and dishonor God. And that makes us sorry for our, our sins. But that didn't even cross Cain's mind. So what Cain did made it clear uh, that Christ hadn't come yet. He showed that he belonged not to the seed of the woman, but to the seed of the serpent. But third, the death of Abel also makes it clear that Christ hasn't come yet. Adam and Eve thought that Cain must be the godly offspring who would bring salvation, uh, but they were wrong, obviously wrong. Did that mean that Cain was the one who was supposed to be the godly offspring who'd bring salvation? Did we make a huge miscalculation? Abel was godly, but now Abel is dead and gone. And does that mean all hope of salvation is dead and gone? Is Cain a real Grinch who stole the real Christmas? Now, we do know the answer because we do have the whole Bible, but we're pretending that our Bibles end at the end of Genesis 4. <coughs> Imagine you're in Adam and Eve's place at that time. What did they think? Imagine that. How did they feel? Imagine that. Does this mean there won't be any Savior? Is there no possibility of salvation? We messed up and we keep messing up. Have we blown it forever? Unless God rescues us, uh, we're done for. We need a Savior. And what God says to Cain in verse 10 reinforces how very much we need a Savior. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood did cry out to the Lord, and the Lord did hear it. 
But Abel's blood cried out for wrath, not for mercy. Abel's blood cried out for justice, not for forgiveness. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance, not for pardon. Salvation can come only by the shedding of blood, but it has to be blood that cries out for grace and forgiveness, and Abel's blood can never do that. When Cain was born, Adam and Eve thought that Christ had come, but because of Cain, Christ seemed farther away than ever, but God wasn't finished with the human race. Adam and Eve really did mess up. They messed up big time, and Adam and Eve's descendants including us, keep messing up, and we keep messing up big time. But God wasn't finished with us. God made a covenant of grace, sheer grace, sheer love, unmerited favor. And no matter how humans fail, God always keeps his covenant. That was Adam's hope. That was Eve's hope. That's my hope. That's your hope. So fourth, we see that the birth and life of Seth make it clear that Christ will come, but not yet. We see this at the very end of chapter 4. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And the name Seth means appointed. And again, their hopes go up. Maybe, maybe this is the one. He's appointed. Cain wasn't wasn't it? Maybe Abel should have been, but Abel's gone, so now we've got another one appointed in the place of him. But life goes on, another generation goes past, Seth is not the one. Seth has a son, verse 26, he called his name Enosh, but the name Enosh means the weak one. The covenant line is finally starting to realize how helpless they really are. Uh, they're starting to realize how desperate their plight really is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And by the blessing of God's grace, they're beginning to feel their poverty of spirit. And we need God's gracious blessing to make us feel our poverty of spirit, our spiritual poverty. Nothing in our hands we bring. We don't have anything to bring except our messes that we keep making by our sin. Even the good things we tend to mess up. But in mercy, God brought Seth and the covenant line to feel their spiritual poverty. In mercy, God brings you and me to feel our spiritual poverty. And it's right at this very point that we see the, the end of this chapter, the very meaningful end of verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. They felt their spiritual poverty. And so they began to beg God for grace. Lord, unless you're gracious to us, we have no hope, none whatsoever. But grace is for the needy. Grace is for those who recognize uh, that they have nothing to offer. Grace is for those who recognize that only God can fix the problems that we've created. So now that ends our thought experiment. You have a whole Bible again, so fast forward to our time because we live in the era when Christmas has come. We live in the era when Christ was born. 
Christmas came over 2,000 years ago in that little town of Bethlehem uh, when the, the, the Lord Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. And the hopes and fears of all the years were met in that one person, the Lord Jesus, the Christ, God's Son, our Savior. Cain was a Grinch who almost kept that from happening. And as you read through the Bible, just think of that theme because the serpent kept fighting against God's promises or the great red dragon that we read about in Revelation 12 kept fighting against God's promises and trying to prevent God from being able to fulfill those promises. Cain was one of the first in a long line of enemies. And he almost stole Christmas, but he couldn't. Why not? Because our God is too great. Our God is too good. Our God is too gracious. Our God is too faithful. We still need to call on the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Abel, Jesus was an innocent victim who shed his blood. Like Abel, Jesus' blood also cries out to God. But unlike Abel, Jesus' blood cries out for mercy and for forgiveness. Hebrews 12, 24 says, You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And God is faithful. So the gospel message is sure and certain. Those gospel promises that seem too good to be true really are true, not because we deserve them, but because God is gracious. And no Grinch can ever steal that away. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Glory be to Jesus, who in bitter pain poured for me the lifeblood from his sacred veins. Grace and life eternal in their blood I find. Blessed be his compassion, infinitely kind. Blessed through endless ages be the precious dream which from endless torments did the church redeem. Abel's blood for vengeance pleaded to the skies, but the blood of Jesus for our pardon cries. Oft as earth exulting wafts its praise on high, angel hosts rejoicing make their glad reply. Lift we then our voices, swell the mighty flood, louder still and louder praise the precious blood. Let's pray together. Glory be to you, O Lord Jesus Christ, for you have loved us. In the fullness of time you came, born under the law, born of a woman, born to redeem those who were under the law and who were under the curse of the law. And you have redeemed us by taking our curse on yourself so that your blood cries out for our pardon. And so that because you paid that debt in full, death could not hold you and you rose from the grave and you are exalted to the highest place, a living Savior. O oh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, cause us each to have a vital experience of this new reality through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen.